Thank you for joining us for our third session on our third day. Now we'll hear a talk from Katrin Tai. Desperately under the radar of state censorship, China is usually a very fine example for that. This talk will be based on the research and how the Chinese community has been using technology to get free of them. Journalist Catherine Tai has her heart in China and we talk about that. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, wait, how does this work? Okay, great. Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Catherine. Um, you have my Twitter handle over there. Um, just as uh, a brief, wait. Just as a brief um, request before the presentation begins, please don't record it. If you want to tweet any photos or anything, ideally don't use my handle. You feel free to use the slides. They don't have my name on them, but I'd rather not have this online with my name on it. Um, you may understand why, given the topic of this, uh, of, of this presentation. So, first of all, um, I want to talk a bit about both how censorship works in the first place, because I feel like it's commonly misunderstood, and then how society in China perceives LGBTQ individuals in general. And then I want to go into... Like this? Sorry. Um, and then I'll talk about how those two things come together, right? So how... This... Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. I think that works. Great. Is that better? Sorry. Um, and then I want to talk about how societal pressures and this internet censorship come together, but then how there's still a line between that. So the point of this talk is not only to talk about censorship, um, but to talk about how censorship is something that is never blanket. It's never a clear line where you're being cut and where it's clear, now you can't do this anymore. Um, it's a very fine line, and I want to talk about how the LGBTQ community walks that line in China. Sometimes that works, and they can do whatever they want, and sometimes it doesn't work, and they are censored, or the police kicks in, websites are taken down. Um, but in many cases, um, people manage to somehow withdraw into a private space that is so far under the radar that they can keep doing um, what they want to do. So we'll see both of these things. So for starters, um, if you've ever been in China, you will have seen this. This is what happens when you try to, for example, access Facebook um, without, uh, without a VPN. Um, the thing is, there are roughly three different layers of censorship that you have in China. And it's important to understand that these all operate differently. First of all, you have IP blocking, right? So like, if you try to access certain websites, you just won't be able to access them in the first place. Um, these are websites like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. The apps on your phone are simply not going to work. Nothing that is on these websites is accessible from within the People's Republic of China. On a second level, um, with the services that are accessible, um, like for example Weibo, um, which is often described as a Chinese kind of Twitter, although it's different, but let's stick to that for now, you have keyword filtering. So for example, if you look for certain words, you simply can't search for them. Um, or results for that are simply not going to be displayed. For example, if you look for the names of certain politicians who may have been involved in a corruption scandal very recently, right? So there's um, actually a website that collects these. Um, this is an example of a list of filtered keywords. You have, for example, things that refer to um, the Tiananmen massacre, but you also have things that, that are basically just a bit vulgar, like genitalia. Um, 
Then um, you have manual filtering, and this is where it gets interesting because that's where people's judgment kicks in, right? Um, this is where Chinese websites um, employ a lot of people. It's unclear how many. There are estimates that say that there are between 20 and 50,000 people in China who are busy doing these things who manually take things down. So once these people see a post somewhere, they decide this is something that we may want to take down or this is something that we'll keep up. So there's always a degree of judgment involved, both on the part of these individuals who don't work for the state. This is important. They work for the companies, the internet companies. And then there's judgment involved when it comes to the decision which keywords are going to be blocked because this is also something um, that, is a con that constantly changes, right? You can change from day to day, one day to the next, the name of like an M MMA fighter was, for example, blocked just yesterday um, because this person said something sensitive. So it's really constantly in flux. There's nothing definite ever about um, censorship. And then there's something that is maybe... You could call it a fourth level, but it's not exactly censorship, but there is online cheerleading where you have people um, in government institutions who post comments online. These comments usually don't have much to do with the topic at hand and they kind of like try to distract from things that are happening and that may be interesting and that may stir up trouble. Um, so this is something where this is a way of essentially flooding the online conversation with things that the government doesn't want to be like that the government does want to be uh, wants to be heard um, and then it just like goes over all the stuff that they don't want to be heard. One thing um, is the question. So if you, there is this judgment call involved, then what does the Chinese government censor? There are obviously some very clearly politically sensitive things that they're going to censor, but it's not the case that they're going to censor everything that is critical of the government or of government policies. Ultimately, one bottom line that you can assume to be the case is that the government is going to censor things that are going to be bad for social stability. So anything that might undermine societal harmony or stability is going to be censored. Um, and that also means that everything that might lead to some kind of public action or public disturbance or whatever it's called will be censored as well. So no matter whether you call for a demonstration in favor or against the government, it is likely that your post is going to be censored in both cases because the government doesn't like big groups of people being out in the streets where it can't control them. So it tries to nip these things in the butt and just prevent these posts from spreading in the first place. So that's really important to bear in mind. It's the list again. So the, diff the other topic, right? Like, so I've talked about censorship now. So what, does it, what is it like to be LGBTQ star in China? I think one important thing is we don't actually know much about what it's like being trans in China in the first place. So most of the statements I'll be making will be referring to the L, the G, and the B, potentially to the Q. Um, we also don't have much information on what it's like to be um, a queer person or generally an LGBTQ person outside of the city. So um, the UN recently published a report on the situation of LGBTQ people in China. They called it LGBT, being LGBTI star in China. The problem is that the majority of people who they interviewed um, actually were young people, well-educated and lived in the cities. Um, but this report concluded that there were around only around 5% of LGBTI Chinese actually choose to come out at work or at school. So that's 5%. Um, well, and they, but they also concluded that 15% um, choose to come out to their family members. So if we consider that this is a sample that is heavily biased towards urban centers that tend to be more liberal, 
It is quite likely that these numbers are significantly lower if you go into the rural areas. Um, it is also quite likely um, that, it's, that these numbers are lower when you go, for example, into areas where ethnic minorities live. For example, um, I know from friends that it's much tougher if you live, if you're part of the Muslim, majority, uh, Muslim minority um, in Western China, or if you're, for example, part of the highly Christian um, Korean minority, right? So these are all factors that play into this, and it's likely that these numbers are positive estimate, and that they're towards the lower end of the, uh, the higher end of the spectrum. It's also important to recognize that the way discrimination works varies, obviously. Um, women are in many cases more likely to be discriminated against and harassed um, at home um, when they come out uh, as, as lesbian or as bi, um, whereas men are much more likely be, to be harassed at work. Um, and trans people are generally hit hardest by discrimination as far as the numbers go that we currently have. Um, and as I've already said, there's a really big gap between cities and countryside, so it's really difficult to also even get numbers for the countryside. So when I speak to people who grew up in the countryside and who consider themselves um, part of the LGBTI spectrum, then usually they say, I always thought I was the only gay person in my village because I've never met anyone else in that city who came out. Um, so it's very much, like, it's very lonely and it's difficult to even get information because people are not going to talk about it. And there's this shame around it. So. One important thing is also that this expresses itself in the way family values are being practiced in China and are being enforced as well. So for example, that you will be fined if you have an extramarital child. That means you can't simply um, have a child with your partner, but if you have that child outside a heterosexual marriage, um, you're going to be fined um, an amount that varies. Um, for example, the uh, Chinese film director, Zhang Yimou, was fined, I think, almost a million euros um, for a child that he had out of wedlock. Um, but these numbers usually start at 12,000 euros, according to a lawyer who works with LGBTQ Chinese. Um, so heterosexual marriages are the norm. That's usually what people do. Um, families pressure young, both men and women, into these marriages and will encourage them to marry. Um, and there are estimates that around 90% of gay men are in heterosexual marriages um, or opposite-sex marriages. It is unclear how accurate this number is because, again, there's very limited research and you can't really do it comprehensively for the whole country. Unfortunately, there are also no numbers for LGBTQ women. Um, so, again, this is very... We're working like with numbers that are not very reliable necessarily. Um, so, what do these things mean, right? So, on the one hand, you have the state censorship that has some bottom lines and some ideas of what it wants to do. It wants to maintain social stability. It wants to maintain the party's position and power. On the other hand, you have LGBTQ Chinese um, that are not necessarily accepted socially, right? So there's definitely, um, there's definitely discrimination that is quite rampant. But at the same time, the state doesn't ultimately care much about what people do in private. So the state in China is not, well, while there is social discrimination against LGBTQ Chinese, the state in itself is not massively opposed to it, right? So it's, might, it might, for example, um, it might, for example, uh, there, there, have, there has, was recently a censorship order that made it illegal to show homosexuality on screen. It's important to recognize that that's not necessarily because of Christian values that like you have, for example, in the US or also in Germany, where people say, oh, homosexuality is a sin, it's something that shouldn't happen. The main concern when, when censorship is happening tends to be that this is something that might perturb social stability. So the government is, for example, worried that the heterosexual family is being broken up because of people are 
not in heterosexual couples anymore and don't have kids anymore, then maybe they're not like as involved in the family unit, they have less to lose, hence maybe they're going to cause trouble, right? And because once you're part of a family, you have kids and everything, you're probably less likely to go out on the streets and protest and put yourself in front of a tank. So that is a factor that really factors into the way um, LGBTQ Chinese are being censored, which I'm going to show you two examples. Well, again, it will be mostly about LGB Chinese because that's what we know about and that's what we have numbers on. Um, so one example of walking this fine line where it didn't quite work was um, the Beijing Queer Film Festival, which has been happening since the early 2000s. Um, it was quite small scale for a number of years. In 2015, they were about to move into a bigger venue. So they were about to have their first, um, the first movie shown in this like a pretty big theater. Um, but what happened, in, and it became more high profile, they started, um, they started having advertisements and everything. But in that particular year, what happened was that they were threatened by the police and the police told them to shut down the festival. What they did instead was everyone who had a ticket to the first screening of the festival got a message that said, come to Beijing train station on this day and take this and this train to that and that city, sit in this carriage. So people were told exactly where to go. What happened was that on the train ride from Beijing to the city slightly out of, outside of Beijing, someone handed out USB sticks with the movie on them that was supposed to be screened at this initial screening of the film festival. And people People then watched it on their laptops in this train carriage before just taking the train back to Beijing. I think this is a really good metaphor, a really good, it gives you a really good idea of how this works, right? Once the festival became too big, it was suddenly shut down. But the way people circumvented it was by going really low profile and just doing these things completely under the radar because once people were in this train carriage, nobody really would have been able to notice um, what they were watching or what was happening there. Um, since then, the film festival has been more low profile than, um, than it tried to be that year. Um, people have been uh, very careful to have replacement venues. So whenever they, for example, may have had to move out, out of a certain venue, um, they ha always had a backup venue that they could move into right away. So there's very meticulous planning behind the festival now, but they're really careful and very aware of the fact that they can be shut down at any point in time. Um, another example, which I thought was quite interesting, was um, a web TV series that was published last year. Um, it's called Addicted, or in Chinese it's called Heroin. Um, like the drug because the two people, uh, the two main characters, when you combine their names, it sounds like the Chinese word for heroin. heroin. Um, this series exploded on the Chinese internet. It was super low budget. Um, it was filmed within a few days, um, but it got super popular within a few days. And after I think two or three episodes had aired, it was censored completely. And the whole thing was shut down. The actors who were involved in it were told not to participate in the production of further episodes. The whole thing is now uploaded on YouTube, but it's difficult to find it on the Chinese internet. So YouTube is also one of the sites that's completely blocked using IP filtering. Um, it was also, this TV series was also followed 
by a new regulation um, for uh, state censorship of TV and that uh, of TV series that told people not to depict homosexuality um, on TV in China. Um, again, you can see the same pattern, right? Once something becomes really big and suddenly a big like big part of the population is interested in this and is watching this, is participating in this online, that's suddenly when the censors crack down um, and the whole thing disappears completely, becomes entirely inaccessible. But um, there are still a number of ways in which the internet is being used. So I think it's important to recognize that despite censorship, the internet for many LGBTQ Chinese, especially those in the countryside, is an important source of um, information, of being able to connect yourself, and is the only way of really accessing certain platforms that you might not otherwise have, and of accessing certain services that are also absolutely impossible to access otherwise. Um, so one important factor is that you have the internet. So I'm, I, I've tried to break this down into three categories, roughly. Um, they're obviously not comprehensive, and there's other stuff, but due to limited time, I'm going to try to focus on these three. Um, the first category is that you can connect yourself, is connection and information. So information kind of comes first. Well, you, now you can actually Google things, and you can find um, information about what it, what it even means to love someone of the same sex. But more importantly, there are also chat groups for almost every single city in China, every bigger city in China, um, where if you Google your city, you will probably be able to find some bulletin board um, or a forum where people are um, exchanging ideas and people live in the same city. And then there's invariably going to be a point where, some, uh, where there's going to be information about a QQ group, which is a bit like ICQ, um, but it's still, except that it still exists in China um, and people still use it occasionally. Or there's going to be um, information on how you can join a WeChat group. WeChat is a messenger on your phone that's like WhatsApp, except better and more comprehensive. It does way more things. But the crucial thing is it has group chats that can include up to 500 people. The interesting thing is, again, that the conversation moves away from the relative publicity of the bulletin board and ultimately moves into what is perceived as a degree of privacy because you're starting to enter private chat rooms that people, um, people need to be either invited to, people need to have the information on how to enter this chat room. It is not something that anyone who's on the internet can simply go and look for and Google, right? Um, and in addition to that, uh, especially the WeChat chat rooms are also, since they're limited to 500 users, there's also only a limited amount of people who can exchange themselves. You're never going to have um, a WeChat group with like 1,000 or two or 3,000 people because that is simply not technologically possible. So again, things are being pushed into the private sphere, but they're also contained when it comes to scale. So again, this whole thing about this idea of preventing mass incidents in the public, you can see that in the way um, people are withdrawing into the private realm. Um, you really have an insane amount of resources online, um, as should probably be expected. I think really the main platform where you can find most things is WeChat, um, where you have uh, a number of different things. Like, for example, um, every important organization is going to have their own WeChat channel where they regularly publish about their activities. Um, the LGBT Center in Beijing has a channel where they post about events. Um, but you also have a trans rights channel that posts about um, Trans Rights Day or posts uh, reports about the situation of trans people in China. Um, at the same time, you will also have you also have a legal hotline, um, the Rainbow Hotline, that gives people legal advice who are LGBTQ. For example, um, if you're a lesbian woman who's in a heterosexual marriage and you want to divorce the man who your parents encouraged you to marry. So these are situations that these people will be able to deal with. And again, all of this is happening on WeChat. 
So you have these two things, right? Like source of information and you can connect yourself with other people who live in the same city as you. Then, of course, there um, is dating. Um, there's a number of dating apps. Uh, one particularly famous one is Blued, which you can see down there on the right. Um, it has purportedly had around 15 million users um, in late 2014. Um, at the time, they raised $30 million in funding. Um, the important thing is that, oh, basically, Blued is a bit like Grindr. Um, so it's a mostly dating app for, uh, for men who are interested in having sex with men. Um, there are a number of apps that are used by um, women, uh, be they lesbian, bi, or queer, um, or trans. Um, the problem is that these apps seem to be struggling with obtaining funding. So while Blued really has like, they have like an international website, they have an English website, they've been covered by the New York Times and a number of other outlets. But the problem is that a lot of the lesbian or like, they usually, they usually cost as lesbian dating apps, but a lot of the dating apps for queer women kind of, again, end up a bit under the radar because it's difficult for them to attract funding. Generally, um, the male uh, LGBT movement has been much more visible in China um, than the female one, unfortunately, um, which is partly probably due to the way funding works because um, a lot of um, LGBTQ activism for men um, has often worked as part of anti-AIDS activism, so in terms of AIDS prevention, so they've got, been able to get, for example, state funding that is meant to prevent, uh, to go into prevention work and to distributing condoms, and you can then kind of combine that with um, talking to people about uh, gay sex and how you can have safer gay sex. The problem, well, not the problem, but like the thing is that you don't have a similar thing that um, the female LGBTQ community can then use and employ. And this is something, that you, this also again an imbalance that you see when it comes to online resources as well, because some of these apps, so these apps have been proliferating for the past years, but they seem to have trouble growing their user base, and they seem to have trouble growing the amount of money that they can still get. So this more institutionalized form of coming together seems to be working for men, but it's much more difficult for women, and it's not clear how that's going to develop in the near future. Um, then one thing that still happens is that you are, that you can use um, QQ groups um, and WeChat groups for dating. Um, this is something that happens a lot. Um, and for example, I think most people who I've spoken to who did not live in Beijing or Shanghai said that they met all their partners um, through online platforms. So the older people who are maybe well, older, but like 30 and above, tend to say they mostly use these online groups, so QQ, and don't really use the apps, whereas apps are something that's more used by the demographic of maybe people who are 18 to 25, so can definitely see a gap. Um, and one thing that a friend of mine told me the other day as well is that she she had a lot of friends who were in long-distance relationships simply because they'd met their partners only through these online dating websites, right? And so then they had long distance relationships. They were in completely different parts of the country. Um, the thing is in China, when you're in completely different parts of the country, this means that you are um, potentially a four hour plane, uh, pl uh, four hour flight or a 48 hour train ride apart from each other. So we're not talking about like German distances where you're like, oh, six hours, that's actually pretty close. Um, so this is a thing that, again, influences the way people are able to love and the way people are being able to enter partnerships because it is difficult to do these things 
in public. It is difficult to meet in public. Um, and I think it's important to note that even in Beijing, which is relatively open, um, meetups for queer women have in the past been told by bar keepers and bar owners that they don't want them in their space. So even in one of, even in the capital, which is potentially the most liberal place, people are being pushed into this private realm and are pushed into this online realm, right? Which is really then the only, for many people, the only way of finding these connections. Thirdly, um, the thing that I uh, worked on a, a bit more in depth uh, last year, um, there are cooperative marriages. Um, this basically means that um, an LGB man um, marries an LGB woman, um, and both of them kind of do their thing and live their life um, independently of each other in some cases. Mostly this happens to escape family pressure, so if your family keeps pressuring you, or like, if my family kept pressuring me to marry a man, I might go out and be like, oh, I have this gay friend um, who I went to school with for the past three years, I shall just marry him and my parents will leave me alone, because nobody knows he's gay anyway. Um, so this is kind of the idea behind it. So it's kind of a win, the idea is that you have a win-win deal where both sides get rid of the family pressure um, and can kind of go on with their lives. Um, the, re the reason for this is, well, Gay marriage is illegal in China. Um, most, like a lot of people, or probably in, in opposite sex marriages, it is illegal to have children if you're not married, um, and your parents generally want you to marry. So there are a lot of reasons and a lot of incentives to do this. Um, the way this then, so oh yeah, it's. I think it's important that this is something that's mostly done by people who are part of the older generation. I'm sorry, I didn't translate the table. Basically, um, this is from. Um, this is from. Uh, a survey that was done by uh, a gay magazine that also, again, did the survey online. Um, they asked 2,600 um, LGBTQ singles whether they would be willing to enter a cooperative marriage or not. Because the cooperative marriage is the, essentially the ultimate form of flying under the radar, right? It means you're keeping up the a complete pretense, um, the complete pretense of being the heterosexual couple you're marrying, in some cases you're getting a marriage license, some people even have children. You, like, you're doing the whole thing while in private, it is not the standard heterosexual marriage. But it's also something that a lot of younger people are not necessarily willing to do anymore. Um, so this is a survey of 2,600 people, and so on the left you have the age of respondents, um, so you can, and the thing that I highlighted are the people who say that they would be willing to enter a cooperative marriage where they pretend to be in a heterosexual marriage but are not really and are just kind of doing it to appease their families. Um, and you can see that the people who are 16 to 20 years old, only 8% say that they'd be willing to do that. And you can see further on the left that half of them would actually prefer to be in a same-sex marriage if that were legal in China. Um, and then there's a stark contrast if you look at the people who are 30. Um, 31 to 40 years old, where 20, more than 23% say they'd be happy to enter a cooperative marriage and essentially keep up this pretense, um, while only 30% say that they would actually be willing uh, that they would actually be willing to enter a same-sex marriage. So, like, you see a clear disparity in terms of age groups. So it's likely that the institution of cooperative marriage is going to disappear in the long run. Um, but if you look at the status quo, it is something that is definitely happening both on a personal level, so sometimes people marry friends who they had and who they know from school. In some cases, people marry people who they meet online. So there is an app that you can use to find partners for co uh, cooperative marriage. There are QQ groups, of course, there always are QQ groups. There are WeChat group chats where you can find people, and there are bulletin boards as well. So for example, if you, um, these bulletin boards 
are sorted by region and you can simply go to your province that you live in and look, well, if someone looking for this. Um, so for example, this young man says that he's 27 years old, um, he, how he says how tall he is and then he kind of says what he's looking for. Um, he's looking for a quiet girl, someone who, like someone who's re respectful, who's respectful towards their elders. Um, it's generally the way he's describing his ideal partner is quite conservative. He wants someone um, who doesn't really stick out. He just wants a normal marriage. He also like what is considered a normal marriage. You also see in many cases that, for example, men who are looking for partners might describe themselves as not effeminate or as an average guy. So there's a lot of emphasis on the way people may be perceived. Um, by other people and how they may come across to the outside and there's a lot of emphasis on these um, on these pretenses um, and so you have this whole forum where people have all these posts and it's very clear always they always know what they're looking for they always say I want this I want this I want this I want someone with this and this salary this and this level of education and then there are the crucial questions um, which is do you want to live together and do you want to have a marriage license because once you have the marriage license you need to divorce the other under Chinese law if you want to divorce, but you need the marriage license to have children. But if you don't have the marriage license, you're completely independent. The only, like, the only thing that really binds you to the other person if you don't have a marriage license is the fake marriage ceremony that you're going to have had um, at each other's respective homes. So there are different degrees of this, and this is something that is in some cases set down as a requirement. People say, I want this or I don't want this. In other cases, it is something that is put up for discussion. People might say, I'm happy um, to, for example, talk to you about having children. I'm happy to talk to you about getting this license. Or I'm happy to talk to you about potentially living together. Um, so this was it. I'm sorry if I spoke too fast. I do that a lot. Um, Basically, I think the main aim of this talk was I obviously only touched the tip of the iceberg for most of the topics that I mentioned. I think the important thing to recognize is that despite there being censorship, the internet in China has really, is really a medium that has been used massively by the LGBTQ community. Um, in many cases, people have been using it to circumvent the kind of societal hurdles that are being put in their way and have tried to circumvent them, them as well as possible. But it's always something that needs to be done with the censorship in mind. And they always need to bear in mind whether something um, might disturb the state. And I think as a closing anecdote, really the most or the best example of that are the Beijing and the Shanghai Film Festival, because the Beijing Film Festival is usually considered more activist, a bit more political, and this is the film festival that was almost shut down in 2015, whereas the Shanghai Film Festival is much more commercial, and there's not really any talk of activism or of demanding equal rights, and this is the festival that has been able to just happen much more freely with much more advertisement, but it's also been forced to depoliticize itself. And so you can see different approaches there are different ways of doing this, but obviously they're going to be trade-offs when you always have to tiptoe around state censorship the way you have to um, with the LGBTQ community in China. So thank you. Um, if you have questions, feel free to approach me or to tweet at me. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Well spoken and well analyzed. So we will continue with the next session in about like five minutes. You're welcome to join the virtual reality. See you soon.